together, you and I are about to embark on a non-linear road trip through popular culture. A subjective history tour chronicling the histories and legacies of the coolest movies and television shows ever made. This season, it's David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker's landmark 1980 parody, Airplane. From the movies and comedians that paved the way for the funniest movie in recorded history, to its contemporaries and the filmmakers it inspired, we're bouncing backwards and forwards through time for a salute to comedy on film and the fine cinematic art of orchestrated anarchy. So come along with me, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Luis Rodriguez, for season two of The Coolness Chronicles, The Shirley Chronicles. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh... Well, we've warned you. What are those assholes doing on the porch? Those aren't assholes. It's pronounced azaleas. Last week, we started a deep dive into the cinematic friendship between comedian Steve Martin and director Carl Reiner by detailing their landmark first pairing, The Jerk, and one of the highest high-concept comedies of the modern era with Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. This week we're going to detail their final two collaborations, a supremely silly story called The Man With Two Brains, and the kinda body-swap two-hander, All Of Me. It's a tale that involves screw-top cranial surgery, elevator murders, and a masterclass in physical comedy. On with the show! The Duo with Two Brains, Steve Martin and Carl Reiner, Part 2. When last we spoke, Carl Reiner and Steve Martin parlayed their massive success of 1979's The Jerk into a blank check movie that allowed Martin to interact with the stars of old Hollywood through a judicious use of stock footage from the libraries of Warner Brothers and Universal Pictures for a film that was as much a high-concept comedy as it was an experimental montage, 1982's Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Perhaps predictably, the film barely eked out a profit, one that didn't even approach the margins of their inaugural outing together, so they pivoted with their next collaboration toward a jerkier blend of R-rated shits and giggles, 1983's The Man with Two Brains. He's a world-famous brain surgeon. The only time we doctors should accept death is when it's caused by our own incompetence. Ten blade scalpel, Metzen bomb scissors. Metzen bomb scissors. Who wants only one thing in a woman? Let's cat out of here. The perfect mind in the perfect body. Steve Martin's out of control in The Man with Two Brains. Were you out on the lake today kissing your brain? As far as I'm concerned, you're the most complete woman I've ever known. All my life, I wanted women with great bodies. Why? 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 Had the top of her head off, but that's as far as it went. Go, Chester! Steve Martin, the man with two brains. You'll laugh your cranium off. Yeah.
The Man with Two Brains is about Dr. Michael Hoffer. I'm Dr. Hoffer. A respected neurosurgeon who has invented the screw top procedure in which patients have the top of their heads twisted off for easy access to the brain. The good doctor is mourning the tragic death of his wife when he accidentally hits the beautiful Dolores Benedict with his car. Little does he know that Dolores, played by Kathleen Turner, is secretly a gold digger who caused her late husband to have a coronary through various insidious machinations. After the good doctor saves Dolores' life through his miraculous procedure and she enters a period of convalescence, he begins to fall in love with this soul, awestruck by her looks and blind to her true motive, to marry him for his money without ever intending to put out. It's definitely a story that had to be made in the early 80s. Sidebar question, was there anyone sexier in the early 80s than Kathleen Turner? Aside from maybe mid-90s Elizabeth Shue, I don't think I could think of anyone. End sidebar question. After the two get married, Dolores begins to drive Michael even more insane, withholding affection and sleeping with anyone and everyone but him, leaving him at an emotional impasse. When the newlyweds visit Vienna for a medical conference, Michael meets a mad doctor named Alfred Necessitor, played by the great David Warner, who has perfected a solution in which brains are preserved even after their host's bodies are dead. If you're wondering, Ryan, where did these brains come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, there's a serial murderer roaming the city, murdering women in hotel elevators with an injection of window cleaner to the posterior, which is a fancy word for butt. The process kills the body but keeps the mind alive, where it can be stored temporarily, and they call this modern-day Jack the Ripper the Elevator Killer. Aren't you glad you asked? Things take a turn for the freaky when Michael discovers he can telepathically communicate with one brain in particular, formerly belonging to a young woman named Anne, uh, Melmahay. Because wacky last names are a real recurring motif in this movie. Feeling unmoored from his marriage, Michael begins to literally fall in love with someone's brain, a torrid, literal intellectual affair, and decides to divorce Dolores for a brain in a jar. When Dolores resists this course of action because Michael stands to inherit a substantial amount from his deceased grandmother, Michael gets desperate and decides to take a page from the Elevator Killer playbook and inject his wife's butt with window cleaner so Dr. Necessitor can transplant Anne's brain into her body, even though her body is technically dead, because science is overrated. It really says something about Kathleen Turner's ability to play the most contemptible of femme fatales that an entire audience would root for a protagonist to kill his wife, but that's where we currently find ourselves. Luckily for Michael's conscience, before he intends to murder his wife and scoop out her brain, the elevator killer beats him to the punch, and you'll never guess who this dastardly fellow is. Talk show host and creator of Jeopardy... Merv Griffin. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I've always just loved to kill. I really enjoyed it. But then I got famous and just too hard for me. I mean, so many witnesses. I mean, everybody recognized me. I couldn't even lurk anymore. I'd hear, who's that lurking over there? Isn't that Merv Griffin? Although stylistically, the jerk and dead men don't wear plaid couldn't feel less like one another, there's a very present feeling of progressive silliness in both, where a sequence of incidents eventually merge and explode in a cavalcade of delirious wackiness. In that sense, nonsense as it were, the man with two brains is definitely a similar beast. And as such, I view it as the conclusion of a trilogy. 
with a clear connection between dogs named Shithead, Nazi plots involving cheese mold, and Merv Griffin injecting ladies with window cleaner. This rubber band reality that appears to exist in the real world right up until the point that it doesn't. There's something about these stupid movies that are my kind of clever. Esoteric and sublime in their idiocy, written like everyone involved is just trying to make themselves laugh, and if anyone in the audience gets what they're putting down, then that's okay too. Carl Reiner had directed five films before meeting Steve Martin, not to mention a career as a comedic legend with several series, including The Dick Van Dyke Show on his resume, but in terms of screen partners, Reiner really met his match in Martin, to the point that I can't differentiate the two in terms of their individual contributions to each film. To me, they're both part of a continuum. A comedic monster with two heads, like one is Rosie Greer and the other is Ray Milland. They may have separate brains and interests, but they bleed together as one. But that's not to say that they were the only authors of these films. That would discount the invaluable assist from co-screenwriters Carl Gottlieb and George Gype, and impeccably cast members of the ensemble like Kathleen Turner, who throws so much into what could easily be a coasting, thankless job, and in the process creates this malicious, intensely watchable creature. It's difficult to fathom that this was only her second screen performance after making her debut in 1981's Body Heat, because she feels like she's tapping into this long-established persona, showing up to play a full-on Kathleen Turner role before such a thing really existed. Reiner and Martin had mostly been fortunate with their leading ladies up to this point, between Bernadette Peters on the higher end and Rachel Ward on the lower, and Turner seems to l relish the opportunity to play such a heinous woman, whose X-Men superpower is apparently the ability to conjure blue balls, whose villainy is infectiously so much fun to watch. It's the work of someone who really loves what they do for a living, barely able to contain her glee at playing someone so intensely heartless and, soon, brainless. But the person who totally steals the show is David Warner. Literally everything he does gets a laugh out of me, like his castle fortress inside a condo, to which he says, quote, it's amazing what you can do with a few throw pillows, unquote. It's not easy to show up in a movie that already has Steve Martin and Kathleen Turner in it and end up walking away with the entire picture, but Warner definitely does. Although The Man with Two Brains was more of a typical Reiner-Martin joint than Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, swinging for a triple after a home run and a gentleman's double, it grossed $8 million less than the previous film, making it the lowest moment of the trilogy financially. Martin and Reiner would only make one more film together as director and principal star, one that would carry the most outlandish of comedic premises, yet serve as their most accessible film just in terms of simplicity, and that's 1984's All of Me. Roger Cobb was a rising young lawyer whose first big case... Guess what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to come back from the dead. Oh. ...was a basket case. What am I missing here? You see, thanks to His Holiness Prakalaza, my soul is going to leave my body forever and become one with the universe. At which time my soul will enter her body. Ah, good plan. They put her soul in a bowl. But things got out of control. I lost her. What's that? And it worked. Oh, my lord! I can't believe this. I can't even die right. Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin in All of Me.
Martin stars as Roger Cobb, a trial lawyer in the midst of a midlife crisis who, through a series of wacky shenanigans, ends up sharing his body with the departed spirit of a harsh woman named Edwina Cutwater, played by the great Lily Tomlin. I would try to explain the logic of how Roger comes to have a dead woman's soul occupying his person, but it makes absolutely no sense, and let's face it, if you're listening to this, you're completely okay with my utter inability to summarize plots in a sufficient manner. It has to do with soul receptacles, a faux Indian swami, celestial transference, and more high-concept inanity, and what's remarkable about the film is that, as complicated as it should be on its face, the audience is never burdened by any of this information. The film is economical in its story, starting very simple and refusing to get in the weeds, even as the underlying soul logic never quite makes sense. The film deviates from the typical Reiner Martin jazz in that A, Steve Martin is on the outside looking in, acknowledging the nonsense in the story instead of being responsible for it, and B, no one takes the soul swapping seriously until they witness its effects firsthand. It's the graduation point from these worlds of inspired silliness into something fairly mainstream, however high concept. There is a sense that the film could have been directed by and could have starred anyone. In fact, it was originally written for Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn, and adapted to suit the talents of Martin and Tomlin. For his part, Martin viewed the film as the start of his mature film career, where he went from being a comedian who happened to be a movie star into an actor, which I think discounts his appearance in 1981's Pennies from Heaven, but otherwise endures. And that's not to say that he's not good in any of the three previous films, just that they don't require him to stretch much, mostly kind of coasting on his stage persona. With All of Me, even in the scenes where he's not depicting the push and pull between his masculine and feminine sides, and playing the effects of having a different person in control of his different body parts, he's giving a rich performance. You feel bad for him when he falls asleep and forces Edwina to take control of his body, because he could get fired from his job and spiral even further into a depression. In any of the previous three films, he's kind of bulletproof. Anything can happen to him, and he'll emerge on the other side completely copacetic. He might be inconvenienced in the moment, but otherwise he's fine. The showy stuff, like trying to regain the control of his left side on the sidewalk at the moment of his possession, that shit gets butts in seats, that's for sure, but underneath it isn't the goony cartoonishness of a jokester, there are personal stakes involved. You get behind Naven and the Jerk because he's such an innocent, an archetype. You get behind Roger Cobb because you care about his predicament deeply. Although he becomes a better man by letting a woman control half of his body, you want him to regain his autonomy. The critics and awards hander-outers of the time agreed, with both the New York Films Critics Circle and the National Society of Film Critics awarding Martin with the honor of Best Actor in 1984, alongside a nomination for Best Actor at the Golden Globes. But let's face it. You can buy those people fancy watches and cover their bar tab at a press junket. You can easily win one of those, no problem. The other two are actually achievements. Carl Reiner's work on the film was less enthused about, but no less valuable. Because Roger sees Edwina in his reflection, a way to keep Lily Tomlin in the movie visually instead of just a voiceover, the story constantly revolves around scenes with mirrors in them. Reiner decided to make the interesting choice of shooting all scenes with reflections without glass meaning if Martin was talking to his reflection, he would be on one side of the wall, and Tomlin would be standing where the mirror would traditionally be, so the scenes actually feel like a conversation between the two halves. 
and it gives each actor the opportunity to play off the other. It's a classic instance of a concept so clever and fertile that you can't believe it hadn't been done before and hadn't been done to the same effect since. A lot like John Woo's Face Off. All of Me was the biggest hit for Reiner and Martin since teaming up for The Jerk, grossing almost $40 million domestically, nearly double the combined haul of the previous two films. It signaled the end of an iconic partnership between Steve Martin and Carl Reiner, but the beginning of a new era for both on their own. Reiner went on to direct some more middling efforts like Summer Rental and Fatal Instinct, as well as a genuine cult classic called Summer School, and Martin continued to be one of comedy shooting stars before ending the decade with a fantastic L.A. story and transitioning into the inevitable dad role with films like Parenthood, Father of the Bride, and Cheaper by the Dozen. The Jerk. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. The Man with Two Brains. All of Me. Over five short years, taking the younger Turks to school, even today. Not a bad legacy. And that is where we end this episode of The Shirley Chronicles. If you're a fan of the show, $5 gets you access to not just early broadcasts of every episode, but countless hours of bonus content and super fun weekly minisodes every Friday that spin off from the weekly show exclusively at patreon.com slash coolnesschronicles. This Friday, we're actually covering LA Story, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. But before we take off for the week, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. It's no surprise to learn now that I have my fair share of cinematic blind spots. Directors and films that I know of, but for whatever reason just haven't experienced firsthand. The work of John Cassavetes is one such blind spot, and this week my recommendation is a film of his from 1970 called Husbands. Husbands is what wives don't know, only suspect, and have never understood until John Cassavetes made a film which Time Magazine calls one of the best movies anyone will ever see. Harry. Cassavetes' movies are typically long and unwieldy in a way that makes them sometimes feel unapproachable, and Husbands is the clearest example of this. Clocking it at 142 minutes, the film doesn't feel edited, which I say in both a positive and a negative way, but mostly positive. Scenes will go on for 10 minutes at a time, forcing the viewer to decide not only why everything was left in, but also what the objective of the scene is. Cassavetes is patient with his characters and allows scenes to find their own natural rhythm, presenting these inescapable scenarios without bothering to hold the audience's hand at any given moment. Again, that sounds like a criticism, but his films have a vitality and a naturalism to them like life captured instead of life dramatized or life manufactured. His only objective was to channel the essence of naturalism. Husbands isn't for everyone, in fact it's not for most people, but once you see it, it will stick with you. Uncompromising, at times painful, it captures the messiness of existence by becoming that messiness. It's a meal of a film. Husbands is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, Pluto, and Tubi, or you could help keep physical media alive by picking up the Criterion Blu-ray. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com coolnesspodcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your chosen source, locatable as The Coolness Chronicles, 
and share it with anyone you can, any way you can. This has been the largest and most fulfilling endeavor I've ever seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. This is a 1,000% independent nonprofit podcast, and as such, we are markedly less visible. Every time you guys and gals spread the word, it assures that we can afford to record another day. Have any questions or comments? Have I missed anything so far in this series? Contact me on Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, Instagram at The Coolness Chronicles, on Podchaser, or on our Facebook page, and keep on the lookout for updates. Also, check out the other podcast that I co-host, Reels of Justice, where every week we put a movie on trial to determine if it's guilty or innocent of being a bad movie. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you find fine, upstanding, well-groomed podcasts. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for all of our wonderful artwork, Build Sherm for all of our wonderful music, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Isabel T, Bobby L, Michael A, Ian C, T-Flax, Ian M, Kitty K, Kelly B, The Vern, Michael H, Mary M, Bill M, Christopher H, Christopher J, Tracy R, and Jenny R. Until next time, do what you love, don't be a dick, and take care. Dawn, that's the end.